morning. Put the volume up. Good morning and welcome to 2014 Pediatric Grand Rounds. Welcome back from our hiatus. We have a busy January with uh, Dr. Davis continuing our CHAD Behavioral Health Mini Fellowship Series next week, January 15th, on depressive disorders in pediatric ADHD, a comorbidity. Uh, Dr. Shiresh doing the colon hour stabilization of the high-risk neonate at birth and um, an evolving approach to neonatal abstinence syndrome on the 29th from a visitor from Yale. Today, uh, I, I sometimes get to talk about kudos. Today, in my introductions, I get to do kudos and introductions at the same time. Adam is our uh, co-clerkship director, as I keep bragging about. Our clerkship is third ranked among all clerkships at Geisel, and our residents are among the best teachers, the best teachers of, uh, res of clerkship students. Uh, and Adam also got his props by uh, Dean Shoba on Monday for his important work in curriculum design. But Adam is a member of our faculty. He, he joined us in 2009, I believe. And um, we get to look at CVs in this role. And Adam is a Dartmouth College undergraduate, summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. He is a Weill Medical College of Cornell University Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Society uh, graduate and a Yale New Haven Children's Hospital uh, pediatric resident, chief resident, and outstanding fellow teaching award. He very early won one of the highest honors in our department with the Saul Blattman Award for Excellence in Teaching in 2010. So a triple Ivy League threat, Dartmouth, Cornell, and Yale, and uh, we got to keep you away from Harvard. So welcome, Adam. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Keith. So I'm uh, real happy to start the new year off um, with the Grand Round series and um, getting to talk about uh, acute kidney injury. And um, when I was training in medical school, um, and certainly a little bit beyond that, um, most of us thought that acute kidney injury was acute. And you didn't really have to worry about it um, beyond the acute period. But um, over the past five or 10 years, there's been, uh, this has been a fairly hot topic amongst nephro adult nephrologists and pediatric nephrologists. And, um, and there's now pretty good confirmation that it's not just an acute issue. And um, there are certain uh, kids and adults with uh, chronic implications after an acute episode. Um, and so now uh, I'm trying to uh, share some of this information and data today. So um, as I like to do, I, uh, I'm going to talk about a, a few cases in the context of this. So we'll start off with a, a pretty uh, classic kind of story. Um, an 11 year old girl who has a history of hemolytic uremic syndrome three years ago and uh, now she presents with elevated blood pressure. Uh, when she was eight years old she had uh, classic diarrhea positive associated HUS um, and she had a pretty uh, severe course of it with anuria and peritoneal dialysis dependence for about three weeks. Her course was further complicated by pancreatitis, hyperglycemia, and hypertension during the acute period. But over a six-week illness, she actually had full recovery of all functional parameters. So what we're going to talk about in the first part of this hour um, is what is her risk for future chronic kidney disease. And so um, 
and for the full hour, our objectives are um, uh, all of you should be able to identify which patients with acute kidney injury are at the most risk for chronic kidney disease. Um, then consider measures that can help prevent development of chronic kidney disease, especially in those patients. And then um, we'll finish by describing and implementing some screening strategies uh, to diagnose and then treat those with lasting end organ effects on the kidney, which is chronic kidney disease. So the way we'll do that is, um, first I'll briefly talk about the epidemiology of pediatric chronic kidney disease. Um, we'll go through some of the evidence about acute kidney injury now being recognized as an increasingly common cause of chronic kidney disease. We'll go into some pathophysiology and uh, talk about nephron number. Um, then we'll talk about what can be done for the children at risk, and then what can be done for the children who do have findings consistent with chronic kidney disease, such as hypertension, proteinuria, or elevated creatinine. So we'll go back to our case briefly. So, um, so again, her primary provider identified her as having high blood pressure. Um, there are some measurements that were done, whether they're at home or school, but ambulatory measurements confirmed um, an elevation. You can see her cutoff is 111 over 73. So these are not like severe or you know um, eye-shattering or earth-shattering elevations, but um, but still consistently elevated. Um, additional history and symptoms, she's otherwise healthy prior to her acute kidney injury, her HUS, um, but since her HUS she's had persistently elevated fasting lipids and she's also had some kind of behavioral memory concerns um, with her schoolwork. Um, she drinks pretty well, she doesn't have any gross hematuria, no edema, no dysuria, she's never had a UTI, and so review of systems is otherwise negative apart from the behavior memory concerns. On exam, um, when we see her, her blood pressures are similarly mildly elevated, that everything else is normal. And on her urine testing, her urinalysis was normal. There was a little bit of protein, and a protein-creatinine ratio was mildly high. It was kind of 0.3 to 0.4. Her lights, BON, creatinine are all normal. So, um, so my diagnosis was that she does have hypertension. It's been confirmed in multiple settings and multiple occasions. So she's got hypertension and mild proteinuria. And I'm, and I'm gonna say this is as a result of some chronic impact on her nephron number. And I'll talk about in a little bit why I said that. And she does, even though her creatinine is normal, she does fit the definition of, of chronic kidney disease. Chronic kidney disease is now um, divided into stages, five stages. Stage five is kind of end-stage disease when you need a transplant or dialysis. Um, but stage one is normal kidney function, GFR 90 or above. So you have chronic end organ effects on the kidney that um, uh, show that there's a chronic kidney issue. So chronic kidney disease with normal function is, is stage one CKD. So um, what causes chronic kidney disease in children? Um, well, uh, congenital anomalies and hereditary nephropathies are still, if you lump them all together, um, they're still the most common cause, and they may be responsible for up to two-thirds of all cases of chronic kidney disease in developed countries. Acquired causes, like infections in particular, are still uh, the predominating uh, causes in developing countries, but in even in developed countries now, um, acute kidney injury is now making the list um, in big end-stage renal disease kind of databases, transplant databases, the underlying etiology for the uh, 
chronic kidney diseases, acute kidney injury now in up to 5 to 10% of children. So acute kidney injury um, used to be known as acute renal failure, but all the nephrologists now call it acute kidney injury, so that's what I'm talking about when I say AKI. Um, but most children with AKI still do really well. So, I'm, so this is not to tell you that a kid has acute kidney injury and they're going to have end-stage renal disease in, in five years. Most of them are going to do really well, and especially during the acute episode, will have a full functional recovery. And even most of those kids will still maintain their function quite quite normally. However, um, we're now seeing it can uh, lead to chronic effects. Um, AKI increases the risk of developing incident chronic kidney disease, as I've been saying, but another issue that um, is pretty notable is someone with underlying chronic kidney disease, if they have an acute kidney injury episode, it can, it can accelerate the progression of that chronic kidney disease. Um, the severity, the duration and frequency of the acute kidney injury are predictors of progression as well, and I'll show some, um, some tables and graphs about that in a little bit. And um, again, uh, as I mentioned, underlying chronic kidney disease is a big, is a big risk factor. Um, not only can the acute kidney injury accelerate the chronic kidney disease, but kids with underlying chronic kidney disease are also more likely to develop acute kidney uh, injury from a nephrotoxic or a injurious exposure and kind of the, the the way to think of it intuitively is we've all heard about contrast nephropathy and who's at risk for contrast nephropathy well people with underlying kidney disease are one of the biggest groups of people at risk so it's the same thing with other um, renal injurious exposures whether it's hypoxic ischemic whether it's a nephrotoxin um, or something else so underlying chronic kidney disease is a big risk factor um, all right, I wanted to emphasize that. <laughs> so, um, so some of the, the data that I've been talking about. So this is a, um, a meta-analysis done, uh, published. This is a big kidney journal um, for nephrologists, if there are any nephrologists out there. Um, uh, and uh, they basically took uh, patients with incident CKD or incident um, ESRD, and they compared the, ah, the hazard ratio of uh, <laughs> whether the patients in these prospective studies had AKI or not. And so basically they found that of the people who developed chronic kidney disease in their study population, um, there was a significant association that people who had AKI were much more likely to develop chronic kidney disease than people who didn't have acute kidney injury. This is a very big, these are generally very big populations in um, intensive care units, um, and uh, they are inclusive of adults and children, so these populations are more adult than, than children, but I'll have some pediatric data in a little bit. So kidney, chronic kidney disease, that's any of the stages that we talked about. Stage one, which is actually normal GFR, but maybe there's hypertension or proteinuria, or stage two, which is mild renal insufficiency and, and so forth. This, this, this table and chart um, is for end-stage renal disease. So you can see um, uh, putting all the studies together and most of the studies individually, there's also a significant association of if you have AKI, you're more likely to develop end-stage renal disease out in the future. So um, more specifically, um, this other group also published in the same journal, 
and um, they looked at the severity of the acute kidney injury on the development of chronic kidney disease. So this is kind of a hard figure to read, so I'll walk you through it. So you can see um, this is people's baseline, and then this is during their hospitalization for their acute kidney injury. So you can see this group had a lowering of GFR to about 60, whereas this group on average lowered their GFR to 40. So you can see these are three different tertiles of severity. And the least severe group, they recovered their kidney function quite well and seemed to maintain it one to five years post the AKI episode. Whereas the most severe group, they actually didn't quite recover all the way. Usually they're going home somewhere in here. We don't necessarily keep them in the hospital till it's fully recovered. So they're going home all the way here. And then, you know, they don't quite get all the way back to normal. And then if you go one to five years later, they have this dip and the kidney function actually declines. And so clearly severity of the episode of AKI is, a, is a, an important thing to consider um, with regards to the development of the CKD. The frequency, the same group looked at the frequency of AKI as well. So this top line is people who didn't have any episodes of acute kidney injury. And you know this is a, a predominantly adult population in this study as well. And adults, just as they get older, lose a little bit of GFR every year. So I guess all of us are losing GFR every year. Um, but it's a very flat sort of decline. If you've had one episode of acute kidney injury, you see that decline is a little bit faster. And then if you've had three or more episodes of acute kidney injury, that decline is quite a, quite a bit faster. Um, doesn't This one doesn't, you know, there's some people lumped in these groups with severe and some people lumped in these group with mild. So they didn't do that sort of sub-subdivision of it. So um, what this data and this, you know, this our information shows us is there, nephrologists are now thinking of acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease as having sort of a bi-directional relationship, and they're really more integrated and um, different staging of diminished GFR with acute and chronic um, staging, so to speak, and that's more the way uh, we think of them as intertwined, and the um, the. You know, part of the difficulty in studying acute kidney injury 10 years ago was there was no unified system or approach or definition of acute kidney injury. And now there's real um, good, clear criteria called rifle in adults and P-rifle for kids that really uniform this. And so that's been helping us kind of reveal this sort of information over the, the past decade or so. Um, and uh, in the rifle criteria, the R is risk, I is injury, and F is failure. Those are all acute measures, but the L and the E are actually chronic measures. So even, our, even the nephrologist sort of um, fun acronyms for acute kidney injury and CKD are now kind of intertwining them. Um, we'll get into this second little bullet a little bit more in depth, but things that can increase the risk for chronic kidney disease is a reduction in renal mass or nephron number, um, poor renal blood flow, certain, you know, if they're exposed to medications that disrupt cell cycle or disrupt repair mechanisms in the kidney. A lot of those are chemotherapies, um, for example, that have nephrotoxic um, side effects. Um, so um, the bottom line is because of this bidirectional relationship, nephrologists are, pretty, are recommending now some long-term follow-up of uh, renal parameters in patients who have had AKI, um, whether it's someone who had one-time mild AKI 
versus someone who had three times severe EKA. There's still some stylistic issues within there. Um, certainly the three times severe or even one time severe, um, pretty much the standard practice is to follow them up now. But one time mild, then um, it's, it's uh, we're not sure what that cutoff is. The, the, the lines are still fuzzy. Um, but if it's certainly if it's a very uh, severe or um, important uh, episode of AKI, um, even if they had normal prior renal function and even if they had seemingly full recovery, um, it's important to follow them up. And we'll talk about why and how in just a second. So before we do that, though, I wanted to get into pedi what pediatric data there is um, uh, out there. And there's one study um, from Vancouver. Um, and it was a prospective study on about, uh, they ended up having 126 patients. Um, and they, uh, their goal was to determine the incidence of chronic kidney disease in children one to three years after an episode of acute kidney injury. And so um, based on some of the graphs I showed you before, you might argue that um, it'd be even uh, higher yield if they could have extended it to five years or, or longer, because it may take longer to really show up. But, but this is pretty good. Um, they actually had some pretty strict definitions of CKD. They did use albuminuria as a sign of CKD, which nephrologists would use, but their GFR cutoff that they used was 60, and chronic kidney disease stage two is a GFR of 60 to 90. A GFR of 65 is, is not a normal GFR. So, so they were being pretty strict, so that, um, that's important to keep in mind. Um, they, but they did also include a category called at risk for chronic kidney disease, and that included those with a GFR 60 to 90, and also hypertension. And again, most um, pediatric nephrologists would probably call these kids, or wouldn't probably, would call these kids having chronic kidney disease, though this group would be the group that we talk about would be at risk. And we'll talk about the hyperfiltration um, issues in, in a little bit too. But in any case, using this strict definition of chronic kidney disease, they found that 10% of children had chronic kidney disease after uh, one to three years after their AKI episode, and it was 17% of those with severe AKI. So there was a fair incidence of kids with mild and moderate AKI that also had chronic kidney disease. Really importantly, 47%, almost half of the children at risk for chronic kidney disease um, were uh, developed at risk for chronic kidney disease. So um, they didn't subdivide whether most of those were these hyperfiltrators or whether most of those were these, but, but that's quite a, a large number to have um, detectable um, renal physiologic effects uh, one to three years after an episode. Um, there were some limitations to this study. More than half the patients were lost to follow-up, although um, most of those were probably uh, the healthier group, one might argue, if they get lost. Um, they probably had a less uh, intense episode. Um, and then, and there, you know, again, the, the, the follow-up sample size wasn't that enormous, with 126 and 10%, um, only 13 of them had chronic kidney disease. But um, this is, uh, again, I think uh, an important start to, to see the pediatric <coughs> Uh, the, the effects of this in, in pediatrics. So I have alluded to hyperfiltration and nephron number and renal mass, and so uh, um, so I want to talk about that effect uh, and and the safety in numbers. So um, a few decades ago, um, Brenner, who's a an adult 
nephrologist came out with this landmark paper. Um, he and his colleagues um, did some experiments, I think, on rats. Um, and uh, and he, you know, to quote him, hyperfiltration in remnant nephrons, a potentially adverse response to renal ablation. So that's uh, obviously he did that in rats. He wasn't ablating uh, human kidneys, fortunately. <laughs> but um, the um, uh, but but what that shows is uh, he reduced um, renal mass, and um, he found that the remaining nephrons started to compensate functionally and structurally. And so what they did there was some adaptations that resulted in an increase in the glomerular filtration pressure and therefore increased the single nephron glomerular filtration rate. Um, the magnitude of this effect correlates with the amount of renal mass loss. And um, on the surface, this sounds great, right? You lose a little bit of renal mass, the remaining ones increase their workload and you basically break out net even. You have the same GFR that you started with. Um, but the problem with was is there's sort of a cutoff. If you kind of increase that filtration pressure beyond a point of no return, um, those are capillaries, glomerular capillaries. And what happens if you have too much pressure within a capillary? The, the, cap, the blood vessel gets scarred. It doesn't do well under high blood pressure. And so, um, so you can start to get sclerosis and scarring of that glomerulus. You lose nephron number, bam, more hyperfiltration, and it's a it's a it's a nasty little cycle. So uh, I made this nice little flow diagram. Um, so you start off with hyperfiltration, which is essentially intraglomerular hypertension. It's easier to say hyperfiltration, so that's what I'll call it from now on. Um, and then uh, the hyperfiltration leads to glomerular sclerosis, and the symptoms of glomerular sclerosis might be hypertension. It might be proteinuria, uh, might be loss of GFR. And then as I'll talk about later, hypertension and chronic proteinuria can also lead to loss of GFR. So, so it's not very good to have. So um, Brenner did all this in rats, but the clinical data has um, basically confirmed and supported this pathologic view. Um, so in patients with unilateral renal agenesis, congenitally reduced nephron number, um, acquired reductions in renal mass, such as nephrectomy or acute kidney injury like we're talking about today, um, we can see these same effects uh, of hyperfiltration. Um, we see that the individuals develop protein in the urine and hypertension in association with glomerular sclerosis on their, on their renal biopsies. So oh, this doesn't come out very well. Does it? Can you see it okay? It's sort of a flow diagram with very pale arrows. I should have made them red. But, um, but you can see uh, these four boxes are feeding into the low nephron number. So a lot of these we can't really control. You know, they're born this way. Um, but the environment's an important factor to consider. Um, in particular, some of these exposures that we can control. And um, no matter what, the bottom line is you end up getting low nephron number, that leads to glomerular hyperfiltration, hypertension, and sometimes systemic hypertension, and that leads to glomerular sclerosis and these um, loss of renal function over time. So um, with that sort of uh, sad flow diagram. I'm going to move on to another case um, uh, to help with some more examples. So uh, case two. So we have a three-year-old boy who has a history of a UPJ obstruction and bilateral low-grade vesicoureteral reflux. Um, in his first year of life, he was having recurrent and 
really chronic um, episodes of pyelonephritis of his obstructed kidney. Um, and so uh, he wasn't thriving, he was doing poorly, so ultimately he had a nephrectomy when he was at uh, about a year of age. And since that time, he's been great. No infections, he's gaining weight, he's, he's a real strong, robust-looking toddler. Um, so um, nephrectomy being an obvious way to reduce nephron number, um, was this a cure? Certainly for his infections, it seems to have been a cure, but is he now at risk for chronic kidney disease? Is he at more risk than he was before with that kidney inside of him? So, um, so this brings me to, um, there was actually a recent article in pediatrics um, that uh, looked at um, solitary functioning kidneys. And uh, this was out of two centers in the Netherlands. And they had two objectives. One was just to identify risk factors for chronic kidney disease in children with a solitary kidney. And then the other one was to see what age the kids presented with their chronic kidney disease. Was it when they were two or three, or was it when they were 15? Or, or how old, how long does it take to actually see the, the clinical effects of the chronic kidney disease? So they had a fairly large number of patients, 407, and they assessed them for hypertension, protein in the urine, reduced GFR, and they also included use of renal protective medications, which is a fancy way to say um, ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. Um, because if they had hypertension or proteinuria, the provider would start them on an angiotensin receptor blocker or an ACE inhibitor. And, um, and if it was under control, if it was effective, then, then in their data set, they wouldn't see the hypertension. They'd see that they were on the medicine. So they subdivided these patients into congenital solitary kidneys or acquired solitary kidneys, like the, uh, the toddler in our case. So um, they called themselves the kimono study, um, but they're not from Japan. They're from the Netherlands. So go figure. Um, but um, uh, you can see their uh, patient populations were pretty evenly mixed between congenital causes, and these are uh, fairly, you know, Dr. Chavez and I, we, we see these sorts of things fairly routinely um, as far as congenital uh, causes of solitary kidney and um, uh, acquired causes and reflux being the most common, um, UPJ next, and then uh, a small smattering of other ones where all of these kids had a nephrectomy um, because something was causing trouble, um, most likely uh, recurrent pilo or chronic pilo that couldn't get rid of. So um, looking at the populations more in depth as far as their uh, age and demographics, um, it's important to note that uh, their age was different um, as far as uh, the, the follow-up, the, the acquired group were older than the um, congenital group, which sort of makes a little sense because the acquired group, someone actually physically took out their kidney. So they're probably gonna follow with that person longer than if uh, they were just born without a kidney, I suppose. Um, the other important thing was um, they had more congenital anomalies elsewhere. So they had one kidney removed, um, but the acquired group had a higher incidence of a problem with the remaining kidney, um, like our patient, he had low grade vesicoureter reflux in his remaining kidney, or, um, or other, other sorts of uh, congenital anomalies. So that's important when we interpret the data. 
Um, so what they find, they use the term renal injury according to the type of solitary functioning kidney, but what renal injury is is basically chronic kidney disease. It's all those factors we talked about, hypertension, proteinuria, low GFR, or the use of a renal protective medication. And they found that a solitary functioning kidney, about 37% of them had chronic kidney disease by, by these measures. Again, note that the GFR cutoff they used was pretty strict, so this might actually be a little higher. These numbers don't add up because this, these are not mutually exclusive, so some of the patients had hypertension and proteinuria, and so that's why this is a smaller number than the total here. Um, they also saw that the acquired group had, had a higher incidence, 45% versus 31%, and that was for all different subtypes as well. But it's important to see, if you look at this um, Kapler-Meyer curve, um, the, rate of, uh, the rate of new onset chronic kidney disease was very similar in both groups. So I think the reason why the acquired group had a higher incidence was actually more because they were followed longer. They were, you know, their average age was 10, whereas the congenital group's average age was seven. So, um, so they just had three more years to have a higher incidence compared to the congenital group. So that's partially what's going on. So they looked at risk factors. So um, what risk factors amongst these children were associated with chronic kidney disease? And using multivariate anal analysis, you saw the age, which um, makes sense. Um, having other congenital anomalies of that, of that solitary kidney, whether it's reflux or uh, mega ureter or, or whatever is uh, whatever's causing it, but um, that, that also is pretty intuitive. And um, renal length is a, is a risk factor. So that's why we um, nephrologists like to follow the ultrasounds for renal growth. We particularly are attentive. Is this kidney growing well? It's now a solitary kidney or it was born as a solitary kidney. It should be growing quite well. And if the renal length is not growing quite well, that actually foretells a future risk for actual symptomatic development of chronic kidney disease. Under univariate analysis, UTI was also important. It didn't quite reach statistical significance on multivariate, but um, thinking back to our patient, we took out his kidney because he was having recurrent episodes of UTI. So if UTI is important, we got rid of that and we traded off the UTI for a solitary kidney. So. Um, so, so maybe he's, he's even there, but he's certainly in better shape because he doesn't have to be in the hospital every couple of months and he's growing much better. So, so it certainly was the right thing to do for him. But, um, but is he at risk for chronic kidney disease? Um, well, that, certainly yes, based on the information. He is acquired, he has, even, it's, even though it's a mild abnormality, he has a mild abnormality of his remaining solitary kidney. So, um, I wanted to do one momentary disconnect, which I'm sure some of you are thinking right now. So why is this patient at risk for chronic kidney disease, whereas in adults who choose to do a living donation of one of their kidneys and have a nephrectomy, if, are we making all of these adults at risk for chronic kidney disease that donate their kidneys? Um, well, there's two differences. One is there's a pretty exhaustive screening process that um, adults have to go through in order to donate a kidney. Um, they can't have any hypertension. They can't have. They can't be obese. They can't have kidney stones. Even um, they. They have to be the healthiest of the healthy. So there's quite a lot of data that goes in um, to their evaluation before they are allowed to donate um, to minimize causing harm. In those, um, they even have their own separate nephrologist um, who's their nephrologist advocate 
against the transplant team and the and the recipient nephrologist. Um, so it's a pretty extensive uh, process. Um, the other thing is um, that the medical students in the audience, will, you know, they've probably seen our second year lectures where we say children are not little adults. Um, and they're not. Um, uh, Brenner, even in his rats, if they were fetal rats versus neonatal rats, there was a much more robust hyperfiltration process that developed in the fetal rats compared to the neonatal rats compared to the adult rats. And so something about the developing kidney, you know, this is meant to be a protective response, this hyperfiltration. So something about the developing kidney, it reacts more strongly to this reduction in nephron number. Um, and so that's, that also is why a, a child, uh, uh, this literature in pediatric solitary kidney may be different if we did the same study in adult solitary kidney. So, um, so to summarize this first half of the session, um, AKI can lead to chronic consequences and, um, such as chronic kidney disease. Um, all etiologies of AKI can do this. All those meta-analyses that I showed, the Vancouver study, um, didn't separate glomerular injury from tubular injury. Didn't separate, and you saw from that Netherlands study, congenital versus acquired. Everybody seems to be at risk for it. Um, and the uh, pathophysiology is uh, a loss of nephron number, which leads to hyperfiltration and then progressive glomerular sclerosis. The risks are severity of the AKI, the frequency of the AKI, and especially um, underlying chronic kidney disease. They're higher risk for AKI, but then they're also higher risk of a, of a consequence from the AKI. So um, with that being said, um, what do we do about it? So um, we'll introduce that with a case. So a two-year-old girl um, with high-risk neuroblastoma. Um, she presented initially with severe hypertension, secondary to displacement of her renal artery. Um, and this resolved with primary management of the, of, the, of the neuroblastoma. And her kidney function was normal. Her urinalysis completely <laughs> normal at the time. Um, she required multiple courses of chemotherapy and antibiotics. Um, and a lot of the chemo uh, was associated with nephrotoxicity because just had to be, you know, you had to take care of the cancer. And um, uh, she was refractory and ended up needing a bone marrow transplant. And throughout the years, again, had many infections and lots of need for antibiotics, sometimes ones that are not particularly the most friendly to the kidney. And she's still refractory, and she received a new therapy, which I'm not going to go to in depth because I'll embarrass myself in front of Julie Kim and Jack Van Hoff and others. Um, <laughs> but but to, uh, to to make a short a long story short, it, the new therapy had this vascular leak syndrome every time you gave it, and so she'd get a dose, she'd have this intense vascular leak syndrome. The first time she got it, she had edema, mental status change, hypertension again, and her creatinine rose. It didn't rise terribly actually. 0.7 or 0.8, but it but it rose, so she had acute kidney injury. Um, she did have signs of acute kidney injury, ATN in the urine with all these nasty findings in the sediment. And um, she did have persistent hypertension with the therapy, so we did have to treat that um, with a combination of a couple drugs. And um, uh, that effectively controlled her blood pressure. And um, though she did still have a little bit of a mild elevation even after things kind of settled out after the first dose. 
And um, as things are, she required multiple doses. This was a life or death sort of thing. So, so she did need multiple doses, even though each dose we anticipated this vascular leak syndrome to occur. And each time her creatinine bumped a little bit and then went down back partially. Um, and ultimately, once things were done, um, she had persistent hypertension, persistent proteinuria, and her uh, GFR was left in the 60 to 70 range. And on ultrasound, we saw there was hyperechogenicity of both kidneys. Um, so that suggests, you know, a kidney um, to be uh, echogenic, that means there's less urine in it. Urine is dark. It's water in an ultrasound. So if there's less urine in a kidney, that means it's going to look brighter. And um, so that means there's probably, in her kidney, in her case, there's probably some diffuse, you know, scarring, patchy scarring mixed in throughout, and that's what's making it brighter. The other thing that could make it bright would be inflammation, but this far out, that's probably not the case. Um, and her urine sediment has cleared too. So, um, so in summary, she's a two-year-old girl with recurrent acute injury episodes and subsequent development of chronic kidney disease. And she's got chronic kidney disease stage two, um, but also the hypertension and the protein in the urine. So what can be done for her now? So, um, well, we talked about in the first half about avoiding insult to injury. So now that she has chronic kidney disease, if she ever is exposed to more nephrotoxins, um, she's going to be at risk. She's at higher risk to have a creatinine bump from a given nephrotoxic exposure compared to someone who doesn't have underlying chronic kidney disease. And then that could accelerate, accelerate things. So that's why um, nephrologists and, uh, are so particular about their uh, nephrotoxins. And it's, uh, I have my own private smart phrase for it and everything. So um, uh, the other thing, though, other than avoidance of uh, recurrent injury um, when possible, is, uh, is addressing our hypertension and protein in the urine. And, uh, and what's left of our time here is going to show you some of the data we have that shows um, that treating those can actually make a difference, in particular the hypertension. Okay, I wanted to avoid nephrotoxins. <laughs> you got to do that, right? So, all right. So first on blood pressure elevation, because the uh, the story here is, is the data is actually fairly fairly robust in this in this aspect. Um, so um, about 2009, 2010, there was a multi-center trial in kids called Escape. I forget what the acronym is, but um, um, they wanted to see uh, what the benefits of strict blood pressure treatment was compared to routine blood pressure treatment, and they used ACE inhibitors in particular. So this was a five-year follow-up study on children with chronic kidney disease and related hypertension. And um, both groups received an ACE inhibitor, um, but one group received it with an intensified blood pressure target to get their blood pressure at the 50th percentile or better and the other group just to the 90th percentile, which is more of a conventional target. Sometimes this group needed reached the maximal dose of the ACE inhibitor, and then they used uh, additional therapy to get them to this target. And they included all underlying primary kidney disease. Um, and uh, they found that the group who had the intensified blood pressure target had delayed progression of their kidney disease compared to the group with a conventional target. And that, those findings were confirmed by a large multi-center study in the United States called CKID, Chronic Kidney Disease. Um, so that's a good acronym, I think. Um, and uh, that also includes children with all causes, glomerular, non-glomerular, everything. And uh, Flynn et al. Um, looked at 
a cross-sectional analysis of 432 children in the CKED study. This was, again, about 2011. So this data set is, he's probably going to publish again, because that data set's now about 1,000 children. It's a really robust uh, multi-center study uh, for us um, that Deborah Matosian is now actually uh, our local PI for. So we've enrolled a handful of kids ourselves. So 54% um, of the children, though, in um, this early data set had um, hypertension. So um, you could see that there's a high incidence of hypertension. And what he, he saw was the ones who had their hypertension controlled um, had slower progression of their chronic kidney disease. Their, their GFR uh, declined. Everybody's GFR declines with time, but it declined at a, at a slower rate compared to the ones whose blood pressures were not, um, were not controlled as strictly. Um, so that's, that's uh, pretty important. Um, protein in the urine is another thing that, that we follow pretty closely. And so Wong et al. also studied um, the CKID data set probably a month before Flynn, because there's like 14 less patients in his group. Um, and uh, he identified the clinical uh, characteristics associated with proteinuria. And he looked at um, the whole data set and their average protein creatinine ratio. This was a first morning protein creatinine ratio, the most accurate one was 0.5. It's only mildly elevated, not terrible. But there was a subset that had pretty severe proteinuria, and quite a few were in a, what he called the significant range. Um, and um, I'll show you a graph of this, but he found in both glomerular and non-glomerular causes, let's just say causes, well, cases works too, of chronic kidney disease, um, for every 10% reduction in GFR, there was a 14% increase and protein in the urine. So this is a messy sort of graph because it includes the glomerular and the non-glomerular. And you can see the white circles, which are glomerular, are all kind of higher than the black circles, which intuitively makes sense. There's more protein in the urine in people with glomerular disease than non-glomerular disease. But this is protein in the urine, and this is GFR. This is a normal GFR, and this is a low GFR. And you can see as the GFR lowers in both groups along a similar curve, the protein in the urine increases. So there's definitely, he's shown here, there's definitely an association, not a cause and effect, but an association of protein in the urine with GFR decline. Um, in glomerular CKD, he looked at the patients who received um, renin angiotensin aldosterone system blockade. And um, that was associated with improvement in proteinuria, as you would hope and expect. And importantly, it lowered um, nephrotic range proteinuria, because there can be other complications of nephrotic syndrome. Um, um, but there wasn't sort of that, he doesn't have that long-term endpoint that, that, that Flynn ha had for the cause and effect of it. Um, perspective study in Italy also looked at this, and they looked at only non-glomerular causes. So most of these kids were kids with congenital anomalies. And they looked at 225 Italian kids for five years, divided them into lower ratios and higher ratios. And again, they, they confirmed the findings. There's a slower decline in kidney function in those who have a lower level of protein. So a higher rate of kidney function decline with those in the high protein creatinine ratio group. Um, what both of those studies did find, though, if the protein levels in the urine were normal or near normal, then using an ACE inhibitor or something to block the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system did not seem to have much of an effect. So if there's normal protein in the urine, you don't need to just treat 
everybody empirically with these with these medicines. So it may be best used for those children just with the elevated protein levels. And the CKID data suggests um, maybe 0.5 is a cutoff, whereas this Italian data, 0.9. So we're still kind of flushing out when do we, you know, bite the bullet and, and start the medicine. Um, of note, the ESCAPE trial, which was really designed to be a blood pressure trial, um, there was ACE inhibitor use, and they did measure protein in the urine in those patients. And they also saw um, that in the first six months of therapy that the protein in the urine did go down in all forms of CKD. So it's an effective way to lower protein, but again, it didn't have the uh, power or design to, to show the long-term effect. Did, did declining proteinuria um, improve renal outcomes? So um, treatment of proteinuria then is still fuzzy in certain circumstances, um, but there are quite a number of examples, especially glomerular diseases, um, where it's shown that that's a very important target that with a, with a hard income. So diabetic nephropathy in adults being the most obvious, it's a very well-studied example that if you control the proteinuria, the patients do better. In studies in children, um, Disease states such as IgA nephropathy, FSGS, Alport syndrome, a few other rarer uh, entities. They're also the, the data sets that show if you control the urine protein below a certain level, um, these patients' kidney function will remain for longer. Um, those are primarily all glomerular diseases. These, this Polish group did look at non-glomerular CKD, and they put patients with proteinuria on renin-angiotensin-aldosterone blockade and they did find that the CKD progression was improved. So this is a small study, it hasn't been replicated, um, but um, there's a lot of both the association and both some of the disease states where it has been proven to be beneficial um, certainly argues that um, treatment benefit uh, may exist um, in all forms of pediatric chronic kidney disease. Um, but either way, Certainly, protein in the urine represents a helpful biomarker associated with long-term <coughs> renal prognosis, just like um, renal growth in that uh, solitary kidney study, and just like blood pressure. And so, those are the main things that someone like me follows. Sam. And I'm like, are you using proteinuria synonymously with microalbuminuria? Yeah. Although the funny thing, or not so funny thing, is uh, depends on the disease. Uh, uh, in diabetes, in Alports, and a few others, they, they, the research was all using microalbuminuria, so doing an albumin creatinine, but in the congenital anomalies and IJ nephropathy, they didn't look at it with uh, albumin, they looked at it with protein. So, um, yeah, so your, your correlation curves certainly don't suggest there's a cliff. Right. It looks like it's continuing. Yeah. The question is, in that hypertension study, we were using ACE inhibitors, so how do you know it wasn't the better blockade with ACE inhibitors to anti-inflammatory effects mm -hmm. that was actually improving outcomes rather than just control of the blood pressure? I think, well, in the CKID study, they didn't exclusively use ACE inhibitors, though if you know nephrologists, there was probably a, quite of a, a dominance of, of ACE inhibitors amongst their group. Um, but there is, there is other data sets, especially in adults, um, that show um, both things, that show blood pressure control, no matter the cause, is beneficial, and um, but it also shows that blood pressure control with an ACE inhibitor is better than blood pressure control with a calcium channel blocker in these sorts of patients. So part of it is that it is the ACE inhibitor doing something good. Right. Has anyone looked at the inflammatory component of this? I mean, is there 
low-grade inflammation in people who have Oh yeah, definitely. There is definitely low-grade inflammation with these people with, with CKD. And I know there are people researching that aspect of it. Um, and a lot of the people who wanted to see, can ACE inhibitors just be good empirically for everybody? Because anybody with chronic kidney disease may have some low-grade inflammation. It's definitely associated with that. Um, but, but those were the people who were seeing if uh, just routine use of it would be helpful. But it, that hasn't panned out yet. But I think they're there's still a lot of investigators studying that. Adam, do you treat that inflammation with NSAIDs? Yeah, <laughs> always. <laughs> Just kidding, for those on video. <laughs> so, um, so good. So proteinuria is, is certainly important, um, but the jury is still out on uh, whether it's universally important in all pediatric chronic kidney disease or just certain disease states. But right now, nephrologists, most nephrologists are, are applying that information to, to all disease states because that seems very likely. Um, so I just wanted to end before we do some more questions just with follow-up on how all three of those cases are doing. Um, so the follow-up on case one, this was our 11-year-old girl who had HUS a few years ago. Um, so we started her on an ACE inhibitor and started her on these patients with this hyperfiltration mechanism are very sensitive to ACE inhibitors. So if I tried to use another medication, it, it, may, it may take stronger doses, but she um, responded to the starting dose of an ACE inhibitor uh, right away, and her blood pressures are now below the 50th percentile, even just on a small dose. So um, even if I didn't want to give her that strict control, she's achieving it. And um, her protein-creatinine ratio went down as expected, and her creatinine remains normal um, with a GFR of 95. Uh, the second case, this was the toddler who had the UPJ obstruction and the nephrectomy. He's doing very well. He's not had any more urinary tract infections over the subsequent few years. No urinary symptoms, not taking any medications. His blood pressures are above average, actually, for his age, but, but certainly below the 90th percentile. Um, he doesn't have any protein in the urine, and his GFR is solidly normal and nicely. I wouldn't act on it. There's not evidence to act on it yet, but it makes me happy that his GFR is not high, because some of these kids might actually have a high GFR, and that might be implying that they're at risk. So, Ken? Yeah. So, you showed that having blood pressure control to the 50th percentile is better than the 90th. So, in a kid like this who never was above it, mm -hmm. you wouldn't necessarily treat? Right. So, he wouldn't have a better outcome if you kept him in the 50th percentile rather than sort of the 80th? Right, and he's more, he's still, he doesn't have chronic kidney disease yet, so he doesn't have any of those criteria. He's got a solitary kidney, so, but, uh, but there's no hypertension, there's no proteinuria, his, uh, his GFR is normal, so there's no, so what, so I wouldn't apply that chronic kidney disease data to him. And, um, and his solitary kidney is also growing. It's more than the 95th percentile for his age, so, so all signs point to that he's going to do great hopefully. And then our last case, um, he, uh, uh, this was the girl uh, with a neuroblastoma. She um, uh, has her hypertension and protein in the urine treated with an ACE inhibitor, and her blood pressure is also really well controlled. Um, her urine protein creatinine is generally around 0.2, and her creatinine is the same as it was a handful of years ago, or two years ago, um, and her GFR is stable at 70, so she's got a nice flat curve, and Hopefully that GFR stays 72 years down the road from now too. So, so she's doing as good as she could be, I think, from my organ. Hopefully she's doing well in other respects too.
So, um, in conclusion, um, we talked about acute kidney injury. It's now um, uh, recognized as a as a cause of chronic kidney disease, and it's kind of reaching our our bulleted lists. It's five to ten percent of all causes of chronic kidney disease failure are due to acute kidney injury. Um, the severity, the duration, the frequency, and also underlying chronic kidney disease to start with are important factors. Um, the mechanism seems to be related to the decreased nephron number and hyperfiltration. Hypertension is a long-term effect, but is also a modifiable risk for progression, so treatment is important. Um, protein in the urine is a, is a prognostic indicator, and if elevated, treatment is likely to be protective. So thanks very much, and I'll open it up for more questions. Nephron, what's, when that solitary kidney gets bigger, what's making it bigger? bigger. Yeah, and good. then why does everyone prefer nephron? Good question. So you only make new nephrons through 36 weeks gestation. So as soon as you're about 36 weeks gestation, no new nephrons form. And the growth is, um, and the functional growth, the hyperfiltration is, is partly due to um, maturation and increased surface area of the nephron and maturation increased surface area of the glomeruli itself. So um, the nephrons that you have will grow bigger, especially especially the glomeruli. Um, uh, the, another term for these hyperfiltration kids on biopsy is uh, pathologically sometimes we have, they say that there's oligo uh, megalonephronia, so a small number of nephrons and they're large. So, um, so that's how they're growing. Uh, Diane. Yes, help me understand acute tubular uh, injury, like in dehydration. Is that at all an acute kidney injury, or is it separate? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a, there's a sort of gray zone, because uh, you know, classically pre-renal or or just decreased circulating volume is a is a you know a, a, another session I give I call that acute renal success, right? There's decreased perfusion, <laughs> the kidneys slowing down urine output and maintaining circulating volume, but there's no injury to, to the nephrons. So if you had a pure prerenal physiology, it, that probably is just fine. There's no harm or injury done to the kidney. It's just most often, there's a lot of kids, like a lot of the consults I'll get in the PICU or the ICN, there's sort of a mixed sort of picture. Um, they may have, they may respond to fluids the way someone with pre-renal AKI would respond, but when I look at their microscopy, there's also some granular casts. So some of the nephrons are still pre-renal, but other nephrons have had injury. And so those patients would kind of apply here, but pre-renal typically is a milder, um, milder on the scale compared to a full-out oligoric ATN, which is obviously severe on the scale. Shalene. So the CQ, is that a, like a registry, or are there actually interventions? Um, it's a little of both, um, but it's mostly mostly a registry. Um, the interventions are not medications, but they're more um, uh, imaging and laboratory tests that aren't standard of care. So they do um, some fancy nuclear test, you know, radio, you know, nuclear radiology tests and. Uh, special GFR calculations. One of the goals of the CKID study is to get uh, is to um, 
get better precision on the pediatric GFR formula. So all these kids are getting their GFR calculated through very formal clearance studies, which is obviously not a standard of care that we do on every kid. But using that data, then we could correlate their creatinine or their cystatin C or other biomarkers to calculate GFR. So it's a, a little bit of both. Randomized within that, or is everybody getting that same intervention? Everybody's yeah. The historical controls or people who aren't. Yeah, everybody's getting the. Um, <laughs> It's sort of self-randomized. Uh, well, it's not randomized at all, but it's uh, it's uh, I don't know the term for it. But the same kid is being compared to his or herself, so they get the formal GFR measurement with a clearance study with inulin, radioactive in inulin clearance. But then they also get a serum creatinine, and so you can compare that kid. It's, so it's the perfect you're controlling off yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, internal control. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> I play that guess my word game all the time. <laughs> Alan? Do you think there's uh, uh, any logic to doing a look back at people who've had uh, uh, acute uh, kidney injury? Uh, because so many of these people will have silent signs of disease and not be picked up on the routine uh, uh, outpatient screening that we might do for preschool or pre-college or things like that. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think so. I think, you know, it'd be interesting to know about, I guess there's probably more acute kidney injury now than there was 20 years ago because there's more medications, There's we're saving kids with hearts that never used to be able to be saved and things like that. But, um, but I think that's definitely worth it because most kids with mild blood pressure elevation or mild levels of protein in the urine aren't going to have any symptoms of it. So I agree that otherwise healthy kid doesn't necessarily need their urine checked every year or every five years or anything like that. But this data and this information suggests to me that the kids, especially, um, I don't know whether it's a single mild episode if they need it, but certainly more significant acute kidney injury, it's worth certainly worth checking their blood pressure and I would say um, at least periodically doing a urine dip and making sure there's no protein in the urine because there's a higher predictive value. If you just did that on every kid, it's probably a false positive, but in that kid, it may actually be real. So that's what I do. Any kid that um, that has pretty significant AKI, I'll, I'll, I'll plan to see them once a year to, to, to help screen for those things. But eventually, I've got to discharge them to the primary. <laughs> <laughs>